Welcome, Assalamu alaikum, and welcome back to Islamic History 2020 with Mohammed Alamgir, your host. Um, thank you very much for being a part of this again, and um, we're on Radio Ramadan, so it's forcing me to get these podcasts done. If you're not listening on any podcast listening device, then please, I urge you, get onto Spotify, find Islamic History 2020 by just typing that into the search, or my name, Mohammed Alamgir, and please like and share. I'm trying to get this podcast out to as many people as possible who can share the uh, joys of the deep Islamic history that we have and the specific nuances within that. So this particular podcast has uh, come off the back of the last podcast where I briefly talked about the Seljuk dynasty and specifically a person called Hassani As-Sabah. And then I thought how wonderful would it would be to bring his life and his um, story to the forefront. And then I realized how much I've bitten off because it was a lot more than I could chew. His life is really complex, really difficult to just describe. And there was so much happening just in his life. And then you overlay that with what was happening outwardly. The Seljuk dynasty was expanding we had the Crusaders in the West getting ready, the temp Knights Templar to come over to the West and, uh, sorry, the East and take Jerusalem. We had the Fatimid Caliph and the Fatimid um, dynasty taking, um, uh, having a civil war in Cairo. And then we had the Abbasid, Abbas, Abbasid um, dynasty and the Abbasid Caliph uh, losing power in Baghdad. This is all overlaid with what was happening in Hassan al-Sabah's uh, life. So I thought, how am I going to describe all of this in, um, in, in a way that people can comprehend it and understand it and without getting lost myself, never mind the audience. So the approach I've taken is to have a very linear um, story time frame. We're going to talk from 1050 to 1124, which is essentially 74 years in the life of um, Hassan al-Sabah. We're going to go up to 1166 because his great-great-great-grandchild, or great-grandchild, sorry, Hassan II of Alamut, he was also somebody worth mentioning. When I read what he did, when I heard what he did, my, my skin started to uh, stand up. The hairs on my skin were uh, starting to stand up. It was that, it was that, um, it was that fascinating, actually. Um, so we're going to cover off his life uh, briefly. And we're going to exclude all of the wider things that was happening. We can't include it because if we do, we're going to go off and veer off and it'd be difficult to keep track of what's happening. So I'm going to exclude it. However, I will draw it in and I will pick up on it so that you're not um, totally left in the dark as to what was happening in the Fatimid uh, Empire, what was happening over in Baghdad, what was happening with Marco Polo and his journey around the world. I will try to include that as much as possible. But believe me, we've got a lot to get through. I reckon it's going to be two um, episodes because I don't want to rush it and I don't want to um, leave too much out. So we'll just take our time through this, um, this storytelling. So what we're we going to talk about, we're going to talk about Hassan as-Sabah, Hassani as-Sabah, Hassani Sabah, Hassan as-Sabah, Hassan al-Sabah. All these different names for him, he's the same person. And you may not have heard of him. I certainly didn't until I um, read into it. But I absolutely would definitely heard of um, his legacy, and I bet you have as well, 
because it's popularized in modern culture, it's popularized in TV, in books, in the gaming world. The Assassins. He was the person that developed the Assassins, the highly trained killers who would go in on a very specific target, high profile, very public, and take somebody out. And he was a, a contract killer for hire. People would go to him, not people, um, kings, sultans, um, the crusaders. They would go to him and say, here's X amount of money. Can you take that person out? Can you take that person out? And the people he took out were phenomenal. There wasn't that many. There was about probably about 70 to 80 confirmed kills from the Nizari um, Ismaili assassins. But they were, boy, they were high profile ones. So we're going to talk about who he was and his life and why he's important. Um, he established the state of the Nizari Ismailis. And we need to look at the Ismaili belief system uh, because the whole subject's called Old Man of the Mountain and the Deviant Sect. This is what the talk is about. The Old Man of the Mountain is a Western um, saying, I think. I didn't know it was, but apparently it is. Certainly in Germany, it absolutely is. And it is in the West anyway, it is. I just never heard it myself. But the Old Man of the Mountain is the term coined by the Crusaders when they came back and talked about uh, Hassan al-Saba, essentially. So that's what we're talking about. And we're saying the deviant sect because, and this is why we've included Hassan II, his great-grandchild, because... I've gone out there and I've put it out there and said he's a deviant sect. And you might think, well, you know, is the Ismaili belief system? Because we're going to have to cover it off because I've called it a deviant sect uh, of Islam. You might say, well, do you know, he's on the fringes. He's on the bench a little bit. You know, I'm not convinced that he's a deviant sect. And I'd agree with you from what the time frame of Hassan al-Sabah's life, you know, you could say he wasn't a deviant sect. You, you could go down that route. And, you know, although the scholars at that time called them all heretics, you could say that that was a bit far flung. However, in 1166, not 1166, so around 1166, that's when he died. Uh, 1120 it was, I think it was. Anyway, whenever I'll get into that story. But when Hassan II of Alamut um, made a proclamation about Kiyama, the resurrection, believe me, he was, the, they became the deviant sect. And, and, and we'll go into the story of Hassan II. So we're going to talk about Ismaili Elis and their beliefs. We're going to talk about the assassins because that's essentially why this story's come about from this mention of the assassins in the third po first podcast. Castle Alamut is his headquarters, his stronghold, the impenetrable castle on Tixenrud, perched 600 miles, 600 feet rather, up in the mountains and the two sieges of Alamut. We'll talk about the death of Hassan al-Sabah and then Hassan II, his uh, great-grandchild, will cover his life off very quickly. And then we'll talk about the legends because um, he lived at the time of the Crusaders. The Crusaders came back with all these extravagant stories about Hassan the uh, Asaba and the man of the mountain. And there's a lot of legends around who he was. Not all of them are true. So we'll start dissecting them and seeing which one of them is true and which one isn't. Hassan al-Saba. He's the leader of the Ismaili sect, the Nizaris. He established the Nizari Ismaili state. He's the founder of the assassin, Assassins and he's established the Assassin's Creed. And he was a major power player in the Seljuk dynasty. He was born to Shia families, uh, to a Shia family. 
an important one at that as well. The Shias are um, a sect of Muslims that schismed off mainstream Islam, and it was essentially initially a uh, dive, dive, a dive. Thinking of the word, I can't get it out on me. They were a different political party. Should we put it that way? Mainstream Muslims believe that after the death of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that next leader, the caliph, the, the person that took him over, took over the uh, ruling uh, of the Muslims, should be elected in, which is what happened. And Abu Bakr took the uh, leadership after him became uh, his uh, Umar, who was also elected in. No, I, th I think Abu Bakr was selected at Umar, regardless. Um, the elected uh, leader. The Shias believe they should have been the family of the Prophet and the immediate family of the Prophet was Ali. And this is why the Shias started to have a schism from mainstream Islam. And the mainstream Shia believers are the Twelvers who believe in 12 Imams. And this is why they call the Twelvers the Twelvers. So age, up to age 17, Hassan al-Saba, Hassan al-Saba was a Shia Twelver. He excelled in in studies, he excelled in mathematics, astrology, in all of the sciences. He's somebody that actually did really well in intellectual studies, and he always impressed his teachers. However, at the age of 17, he converted to Ismailism. We will go into what Ismailis believe, but the Ismaili belief system is very different from the Sunni belief system, which is the mainstream Muslims, and is also very different from the Shia belief system. Um, and we'll talk about what the, those differences are. But he accepted Ismailism after being introduced to it by a Ismaili Sheikh. At the age of 17, he converted and he never looked back. He studied in Ray, which was a capital for thought and theology and uh, Ismaili's beliefs. And he studied under great imams and sheikhs at the time of that belief system. And he excelled. And again, you know, he was a, he was a very intelligent person, a very uh, studious person. And so therefore, um, when it came to religious studies and Ismaili beliefs, he excelled in that as well. Um, he was sent to different parts of the uh, of the uh, Seljuk dynasty in order to um, study and learn. And in fact, he was uh, so impressed. He impressed the one of the leader of the Ismaili believers so much so that they made him appointed him a da'i. A da'i is somebody who propagated the religion, who somebody who went out to teach the religion of Ismailism. Just like he was converted by a da'i, he was now a da'i going out. You finding young people and converting them to Ismailism, and this is why Marco Polo referred to him as somebody who would find young men and lure them into his sect because that's what he was doing now even at that time ismailism was um, rejected rejected by most actually so therefore they couldn't openly go out and start preaching islamism so their their way of uh, preaching was they their da'is which is now what is um, which is now what hassan has become their da'is would pose as mainstream sunni muslim sheikhs they would travel the cities the towns the countries and propagate the religion of Islam and they would be accepted in because they were a mainstream Muslim sheikh. However, when they started gathering a congregation and a gathering and people who were following them, the Da'i, he would identify one or two individuals who might be open to the Ismaili 
belief system and start exposing them to Ismaili beliefs with the hope of them becoming an Ismaili. And exactly what happened to um, Hassan Yas Sabra um, is what he was going out and doing. And he traveled, he traveled extensively, he traveled all across Egypt, he traveled across Damascus in Syria, he got a massive following, he was recognized as a really reckon, uh, reputable, credible Ismaili Sheikh, who, um, and as I said, he was, he was somebody, and you'll see in his whole life, you know, he's somebody that actually, you know, had a lot about himself, a lot of charisma, a lot of personality, uh, somebody who had vision, so therefore it's not surprising that as Da'i, as a preacher of Ismaili Islam. He's somebody that excelled in that too. He went to Armenia, Azerbaijan, and this following that got bigger and bigger. Now, when I refer to him, uh, I refer to him as the leader of the Nizari Ismail Elis. And now there's another schism that took place um, at the same time, essentially. And this is what I mean. I can't go into it much because we're going to digress. But at a high level, um, after the death of the Fatimid Caliph, the um, next person in line should have been his eldest son, Nizar. However, the government, specifically the general Aftal, aligned it so that Mustafa Ali, his younger brother, would take the throne. Now, this didn't go down well with everybody, especially Hassan, because in Shia beliefs, not the caliph is not just the leader, but is also the imam, the somebody that gives the spiritual leadership. And we'll talk about the imamate later on. But this imam is a really important role, and the imam is somebody that is the representative representative of God on earth. So, um, Hassan al-Asaba supported Nizar, the oldest son, in the imamate and the caliph. However, Aftal and the government of the Fatimids put Mustafa Ali, his younger brother, in place. Because Hassan supported Nizar whilst he was in Egypt, he was imprisoned. Now, because he had such a great following, he had a great name and a reputation after him, uh, something happened in Egypt which got him released from prison. That One of the minarets of the jail collapsed when he was in jail. And everybody saw it as a sign of locking up a great imam. So they released him from prison and exiled him from Egypt and said leave and um, put him onto a boat back to Persia however that boat uh, got wrecked shipwrecked and he was rescued and taken to Syria so again he was traveling uh, extensively um, around trying to actually um, get back to um, his uh, his main place essentially he did end up in Kozvin in Iran which is where he essentially settled as well Kozvin is a mountainous area and in Kozvin, it was a Ismaili stronghold. There was a lot of support for Ismailis. There were people there that believed in it and also people that just fed up with the Seljuk Empire's uh, leadership. So therefore, he found a lot of uh, sympathizers there. In Kozvin, he wanted to establish a stronghold, a headquarters where he could propagate the religion wider. He could propagate even, and this is his vision at a the, at the young age, at a young uh, time, he could propagate an Ismaili state, a state where the Ismailis could live and govern themselves and live by their own rules. So, in Kozvin, he sent his followers out trying to identify suitable places that could be a um, place for our headquarters. And so, this is where Castle Alamut comes into it. So in the next part, we're going to next segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about Castle Alamut. But hopefully this is giving you an introduction as to who is Hassan As-Sabri, Hassani As-Sabra. 
his name um his name certainly gets me uh, confused he's somebody as i say that was born into a shia family at the age of 17 he converted to ismailism and because he was an intelligent uh, switched on individual anyway he excelled in the ismaili beliefs and the leader of the ismailis at the time appointed him a da'i he's responsible for going around different parts of the country different parts of the world um, and different cities and towns and propagating the religion under the guise of a sunni muslim he traveled to egypt where he was imprisoned for um supporting nizar nizar was the um ousted son of the caliph and because he supported him he was imprisoned and in prison he was let go because a minaret fell and they saw that as a bad omen and chucked him onto a ship back to persia which he eventually ended up back in kosvin in iran where the next part of our story will continue Okay, so we're going to move on to Castle Alamut. And Castle Alamut is quite an important part of the story of Hassani Asaba and also the Nizari Ismailis. So, to understand what was Castle Alamut, let me give you some history. It's a 250 year old um, castle perched upon the cliff edge about 600 feet up into the air. Um, it was built by the first generation Persian Muslims after the uh, Muslims invaded Persia, uh, conquered it and um, a lot of them converted to Islam from their religion of Zoroastrians. Um, it was built um, after an eagle landed on it and the Sultan or the leader or whoever built it um, called it Alamut, the eagle's teaching because he felt that the eagle taught him where to put the castle. Uh, castle Alamut was um, important to Hassan Yassaba because now he's in Kozvin. He's kind of settled in this um, in this town of Kozvin, and he wants to build a uh, a headquarters. He wants to build a central focal point for the Nizari Ismailis to go out and do their da'i, their preaching work. And remember, he's a visionary. He wants to create a Ismaili state. So he feels that he needs something appropriate, which is safely guarding him and his worshippers and disciples uh, from the outside threats, which we'll talk about later on anyway. He sent his um, disciples out. He sent his, um, you know, his, uh, his followers out on a mission to find uh, different places and uh, identify different potential places that he can uh, uh, set up from. And one of them came back with Castle Alamut. Now, Castle Alamut was owned by a man called Mahdi. He was a Sunni Muslim, and I don't think he had aspirations of selling it. However, um, what Hassan Yassaba did was take over it peacefully without any bloodshed and take the castle. And essentially what he did is um, take over it through what we would call squatting nowadays. He sent over some of his da'i, some of his um, uh, followers, and they converted a lot of the people in the immediate region into Ismaili beliefs. And um, Mahdi, the owner, was away at one point on business out of the area, out of the country, and he, Hassan Yassaba, and his followers basically took over it. When Mahdi returned, he found his castle um, taken over, his people living in there, and he was a little bit um, unsure what to do. 
um, not wanting any bloodshed or well he's outnumbered anyway by the Ismailis so not knowing what to do he decided to take a, uh, a position of well I won't do anything and see what pans out and hopefully these guys will leave but what um, Hassan Yassaba did was go to him and write him a credit note of 3,000 gold pieces and he said take that to the governor of Damagnan I think I pronounced that correctly there's another town further up called Damagnan Damaghan I think it is Damaghan and they will he will pay you um, Mahdi didn't think anything of it he thought I've just been hustled out of my uh, castle here anyway many years later um, when Mahdi was short of money he took that credit note and he did go to the governor of Damaghan and surprisingly the governor an Ismaili follower of uh, Hassan Yassaba immediately paid him 3,000 pieces of gold um, so anyway now we've got um, the Nizari Ismailis, they've set up uh, a camp and they're out able to do further work, uh, da'i work and administrate themselves from this central point. It wasn't the only castle that they actually secured. Over the course of the next few months, years, they secured a castle network. All of them were in the mountains. All of them were um, castles or buildings in the mountains, uh, out of the way of the main uh, mainland and difficult to reach. So now we know who Hassan Yassaba is, and we know a little bit about his uh, Alamut, which is Castle Alamut, 600 feet up in the mountain range, covered by 1,100 feet high cliffs around their short, narrow passageways and valleys that um, um, need to be accessed through it. Um, we need to understand why the Seljuk leaders hated him and then laid siege to Castle Alamut uh, not long after. And yes, the Ismi Ismaili uh, sect was very much hated um, at that time and many people um, just didn't like them. And ultimately, this is the reason why the Da'is would go out preaching Sunni Islam and uh, you know the guise of a Sunni Sheikh because they didn't want to come across as an Ismaili because they would be persecuted. Traditional Islamic scholars of the time have called them heretics, called them you know disbelievers, and this is why we've called it the deviant sect. But they get even more deviant. So give you an idea, Ibn Taymiyyah at the time uh, called them disbelievers. Um, so whatever the Ismailis believed. Ibn Taymiyyah, and he's a respected scholar, respected sheikh uh, by all accounts, by all Sunni Muslims, um, called him a disbeliever. Al-Ghazali, um, he needs no introduction, he lived at this time, he called them liars. He said lying is a part of their creed and they cannot be trusted even if they repent. So what he's saying is that because of the Da'is going out uh, posing as Muslim Sun sorry, Sunni uh, scholars, this Al-Ghazali is saying that their creed is made up, their, their whole socio-economic, socio-political um, system is made up through lying, lying about what they preach and then converting one or two of their followers. So he said, you should kill them all. And after they're killing, let God judge them, because even if they repent and say, I repent from Ismailism, they actually probably are lying and there's no way of knowing. Um, and they were persecuted, you know, fast forward another 15, 20 years, there was a massive purge of uh, Ismaili Muslims and the Seljuk government advised all Shayuks, all religious leaders to 
give etiquette against them um, so that they could basically carry on with the purge. And that's why Al-Ghazali said that they were liars and lying was part of their creed and they should not be trusted. Even if they repent, kill them and let God judge them. So what is the Ismaili, Ismaili belief, the Nizari Ismaili belief system that makes them heretics, makes them disbelievers, makes a massive sheikh like Al-Ghazali, whether you're Muslim or not, Al-Ghazali is a heavyweight when it comes to scholarly, um, theological discussion, philosophical discussion. There's no dispute in that. So what on earth do they believe that makes people like him say they're liars and they're disbelievers and heretics? Right, so the next section is a little bit different to everything that I've been talking about and everything that I will talk about because I'm going to be talking about their belief system. And their belief system um, is not very, it's not, obviously the Da'is would go out and pose as Muslim Sunni sheikhs and then expose one or two of the followers to the Ismaili belief. So it wasn't an obvious, it's not like you can go research Catholic Christians, Protestant Christians, Hinduism, you can't go out there and just research what Ismaili belief system is because it was very hidden anyway. They did have books. Um, Al-Hassan Yassaba in the latter part of his life was committed to just documenting um, and um, uh, documenting and writing books about the belief system. However, when the Mongols um, invaded Castle Alamut um, about 150 years later, um, it was all destroyed. So there's not much out there. So the next bit of information I've only got from one source. There's no, I've not been able to cross-reference. Everything else I've given you here has been cross-referenced and it's been verified from very different sources. The next section about the belief system is from one single source. And so if there are errors in it, then you have to forgive me. And talking about errors, actually, I've made an error. When I said Hassan II of Alamut was great-grandchild of Hassan Yassaba, that's a complete mistake. He's not the great-grandchild. They're not related. Um, they're not related. That's just an error on my side. It is the month of Ramadan. I'm fasting. And that section was done. Um, these pieces I do in different days. And that section was done at the last hour of the fast yesterday. And my brain was obviously not in full gear fully functioning i wasn't um firing on all cylinders and i've said it several times and then in the night i thought hang on what am i talking about he's not the great-grandchild they're not the great-grandchild he just uh f had the name so anyway what is the belief system of the ismaili beliefs uh muslims or the ismaili sex the ismaili shias so first of all, they're called the Seveners. Seven is a big number in their life. The Twelver, the Twelver Shias believe in 12 Imams that will come or have come. Um, and the Seveners um, are called Seveners because seven plays a big part in their religion. And we'll talk about that in a moment. On the outer level, they have the same beliefs as the Sunni Muslims. They fast. They believe in um, God. They believe in the Muhammad as a messenger of God. They pray the five daily prayers. They, they pay zakah. They don't drink alcohol. It's forbidden for them. They don't lie. They uh, act righteous to their neighbors. So the outward um, beliefs and the outward actions um, are no different to the Sunni Muslims. So it's very, very similar uh, traits when it comes to the outward and the physical and the, you know, the, what you see, the apparent, what you can see. However, when we start delving into 
it a little bit deeper. They have some very peculiar beliefs. It's very quirky. Starting off with the Quran. They believe the Quran has an outer and an inner meaning. They call it the Zahir, which is the outer, the apparent, what you can see, and the inner, which is the Batin. The Batin, the inner meaning of the Quran, is the true meaning of the Quran only for the enlightened, and the enlightened are the Ismailis, obviously. Now, the Sunnis have a similar concept of like an outer meaning and an inner meaning. So that's not too dif different from, you know, what a Sunni would believe. Um, a very, very basic example of it, some of the surahs, they, you know, they start with um, Yasin, you know, with just letters and there's no, there's no real meaning for it. So some scholars, they say, yeah, it has a, it has a hidden meaning or a deeper meaning, which, you know, we don't know, which is fine. So that's okay. But their inner meaning is very different to what the Sunni inner meaning might be. Because the Sunni inner meaning will always relate to the par paragraph or the verse or the chapter. It'll be relevant. It'll be in the same sphere. The um, Ismaili inner meaning is a completely different ballgame. Let me give you an example. So the first, if you open the Quran, the first chapter of the Quran is Surat al-Fatiha and um, is read in every single um, chapter of sorry every single uh, verse every every single unit of prayer it's read in so it's a very popular um um verse chapter of the quran any muslim will know surah al-fatiha and um it's read regularly if you're a muslim and you practice you read it every single time you worship god in the salah and the prayer the five daily prayers let me translate it for you just the first three lines to give you an idea of what it means it will start with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, which is all praise to God, the extremely merciful, the most merciful. And then it will say, praises to God, Lord of the worlds, the most gracious, the most merciful, master of the day of judgment. That's the first three lines of this chapter. And no one will dispute what I've said. They might dispute some of the translations, but it's all in the same in the same in the same sphere, as I say, there's no, it's translated from Arabic to English, so, you know, there's words can be, can be a little bit different, but typically that is the meaning, that is a generally accepted meaning. Let me read you the inner meaning of the same three verses from the Ismaili beliefs, and you'll see what I mean. You are the just, you are the sinless, O Ali, the gracious heavenly king. O Ali, you indeed, Ali, are the sustainer and the merciful. If you're a Muslim, you're probably thinking, what the heck? <laughs> if you're not a Muslim, you can understand that there's a very, very distinct difference between those three verses. One is praising God in his um, unique, in his, in his entirety. There's no, there's no association in Islam to God. God is uh, the sole deity. Here, the verse, first verse of the Quran for the Ismaili believers is praising Ali to a point that they call him a heavenly king, the sustainer and the merciful, when that is, that, those are the words describing God for the Sunni Muslims. So you can understand why the Seljuk leaders did not like the um, Ismaili, Ismaili uh, Shias, the Nizari Ismailis. So that's um, their understanding of the Quran. They also believe the Quran had seven levels of depth, 
depth. So you would go through these different levels to get to the different levels of depth um, to understand the Quran. So at the very face, the base level, you'd start believing in God and the oneness of God and etc. Then you start moving down the line until a point where you understand who Ali is and you understand the position Ali has in the religion and that is yet to come. They also had something called the Abjad numeric system, which is um, incorporated into their beliefs and the abjad numeric system basically assigns numbers to Arabic letters um, and they they were firm believers um, that that was a part of their religion so um, the abjad number numeric number for Muhammad peace and blessings upon him the messenger of God was 92 Abu Bakr who was the next Caliph, the leader after Muhammad, peace be upon him, died, was 231. Umar, the next leader, is 661. So you can see they're moving further and further away from Muhammad, peace be upon his number of 92, 231, 661. Well, Ali is 110. So that was something that it didn't go amiss to them. So again, you know, it's reiterating how Ali is, should have been the next um, leader of the Muslims and the um, the person that should have taken that over. So, that's the Abjad system. The next bit is a little bit complicated and I hope I can explain it to you. They have the concept of the seven great prophets and also the seven great, seven silent imams. So, let me explain that again. The religion of Nizari Ismailis believe that there are seven great prophets and there are each prophet has a, seven, a silent imam that follows after them. The great prophets, they teach the outer meaning. Remember, we talked about the um, Zahir, the outer belief for the Muslims. So they teach an outer belief, which is for the everyone, me, you, and the layman. But if you're an enlightened Nizari Ismaili, you are taught what the silent imam would teach. So what they said is that there will be a great prophet seven silent imams and then another great prophet seven silent imams and then and the next great prophet i think i pronounced that correctly that's correct so um their first great prophet who they call um uh what they call um the great prophet is adam peace be upon him and his silent imam was Seth. The next great prophet was Noah, peace be upon him, and his silent imam was Shem. The next great prophet was Abraham, peace be upon him, and his silent imam was Ishmael, or Ismail. The next great prophet was Musa, peace be upon him, and his silent imam was Aaron. The next great prophet after that was Jesus, peace be upon him, and his silent imam was Saint Peter. The next great prophet after that was Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his silent imam, as you can probably guess, was Ali. So the great prophets are teaching the masses, and the silent imam is teaching the inner Barton meaning of the uh, religion. So this is what they um 
they uh, believed. And what they also believe is that Al-Karim is the next um, uh, silent imam or the next prophet and they're awaiting his arrival, which doesn't dis isn't too dissimilar to the Sunni Muslim belief of Al-Mahdi, um, who is going to be an imam that's going to lead at the time of the um, time of judgment, when the world is coming to an end, uh, the day of judgment is close, Al-Mahdi will come. Well, they believe Al-Karim will come. Okay, so they believe, and I'm just thinking of the, I'm just thinking I didn't document write it down. The word they use is natik, um, which is um, the great great prophets. Um, right, they also believe in reincarnation. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Um, I'm going to talk about a little bit about this, and again, this is from a single source, but. Um, this is not documented that obviously, but they definitely believed in reincarnation of the soul. Um, there's a Nizari Ismaili imam or leader who came after um, Hassan II, actually, or at the same time as Hassan II, actually. He was, he was living at the same time as um, uh, Hassan II, who we'll talk about later. He, his name was Rashid Din. Rashid Dean. His name was Rashid Dean something. I can't remember the second part of it because he wasn't meant to be a part of my talk, but I'm chucking in there. And he gave examples of um, re reincarnation and how he would be able to talk to animals and animals were aware of previous lives uh, or a horse um, was being treated badly and complained to Rashid Dean and said that she, the horse was previously in another life as a princess of a great king. So they certainly have some sort of reincarnation in belief in their belief system. So you cannot see why the um, Ismaili beliefs kind of like butted up against the Sunni belief, uh, Muslims of the time, the Sunni Saljuk leaders who were Sunni Muslim. It didn't bode well with them. And uh, you can understand that the uh, Nizari Muslims now having a central base, the Alamo Castle was kind of a problem because they are from there able to like really push this um, agenda and go on a convert, uh, you know, a, a conversion mission almost, you know, pro 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 propagating the religion. So they got onto the radar of the prime minister of the time. And the prime minister of the time in 1092 was a man called Nizamul Mok. He may as well have been the de facto leader because the sultan, his name was Malik Shah, um, he was almost like a puppet sultan, you know. He he was there, but the real the, the person pushing the uh, pushing the uh, pushing the agenda was Nizamul Mulk. And in 1092, Nizamul Mulk decided to send two armies against um, Alamut because he had enough of what they were doing, he had enough of what they were preaching, and so he sent these two armies and said, Go and capture um, these uh, Ismaili Muslims or the Ismaili Shias and put an end to this um, heretic behavior. So they've now sent two armies to the impenetrable uh, fortress of Al Amut and they cut off the supplies. And they held siege to them. But they weren't that easily accessible because remember, the 600 feet up, there's a very no, narrow passage that takes you up to the um, uh, castle, and that's obviously been uh, uh, fortified. So, although the army's at the bottom and they're camping and they're holding siege, they can't really do much to, um, to get to the, uh, the Nizari Ismailis in the castle.
The Nizar Yismaidis, they're running out of supplies, water, food, and you know the, the people are starting to now, this siege is going on for months. This, the people in the castle are saying, come on, Hassan Yassaba, let's surrender. The the army commander saying, look, if you surrender, we'll understand that you were, you know, kind of like forced into it by Hassan Yassaba. We'll give you free passage. You won't be hurt. Your children will be safe. We won't attack you. Just come down. No, it'd be good. So the um, the Nizari Ismail is really putting mounting pressure on uh, Hassan Yassaba and saying, come on, let's just surrender. We can't hold out. We run out of food and water. We've got children here. The children are crying and, you know, hungry and thirsty and it's all, it's all, it's all bad. And they were probably almost at the point of giving up because it was not looking good for Hassan Yassaba and the people inside Castle Alamut. But then in a, in a, in a twist of fate, 300 Ismailis managed to sneak from a neighboring village into the castle with supplies and re-energized the uh, Ismailis. Um, Hassan Yassaba sent word for more to come and another 300 or so did also sneak into the castle. So now with this new reinvigorated army and also supplies gone in there, they, 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 they couldn't take on the Seljuk army, you know, like for like, there was no chance. What they did is do a, a raid, a night raid, and when the Seljuk army were not expecting it whatsoever, because they'd been there for months, they did not expect an attack in the night. You know, the the men, the Seljuk army, not the Seljuk army, sorry, the Nizari Ismaili, you know, men, the warriors, the fighters, they come down on a night attack and they attack the Seljuk army and they scatter. So um, they've now broken this siege and they're able to kind of like restock our castle Alamut. But it's now the time to introduce to you the assassins, because you have to understand the socio setup of the Ismailis. We've already talked about the Da'is. The Da'is are the callers to Islam or the callers to the religion, the people that would go out and propagate and convert people to Ismaili beliefs. So that's the Da'is. That's the one of the roles. And that's a position within the uh, religion and the, and the, and the, and the uh, sect. The next uh, position is the Rafiks. That's the everyday people. They, they don't have a particular position. They believe in the religion. They support the religion. They do what they can for the religion. But other than that, they are just your everyday Joe. The next position is called the Fada'ins. The Fada'ins are the soldiers. But they're more committed um, than just soldiers. The Fadi'in actually translates to somebody who sacrifices themselves. You know, it's a sacrifice. Because they would. They were 100% committed to the cause. They would die for the, um, for the cause. And the Fadi'in were the army. They were essentially the, uh, the army of the Ismaili uh, Shias. And that's what came, or that's who the assassins were. The assassins come from the Fadi'in. Because there weren't a load of them. There weren't that many of them. They certainly weren't big enough to be an army to go and take on um, the Seljuk army in a battle of one-to-one, you know, foot soldier against foot soldier, horseman against horseman. The Fedein were highly trained and they got better and better. And they, they were tasked with very specific targeted high-profile kills. Mainly, or majority of the time, they would 
end up being suicide missions because they would kill the target, but they would be left exposed and they would then be captured or murdered and, or and captured and then tortured and then murdered, but they would probably die. So they were referred to as the Hashashins. And that was more of a slur. And I'll tell you, we'll talk about that in a bit, but the Hashashins were the Fedeins. The Fedeins are the soldiers and the soldiers were not the soldiers that you and I would expect to go out into a battlefield. These were highly trained individuals, killers who would go out and do a very specific targeted kill. The Anglo-Saxons kind of changed the name of the Hashashin into the Assassins and the Assassins actually stuck. So the, who are these Fadeins? The Fadeins are the young men. They are committed to the, um, the Hassaniya Sabah and the, da, and, the Dab, and the leader of the Ismailis. And an example of how committed they are. Uh, Marco Polo documents in his travels that he went to the man of the mountain. And or in fact, I think uh, Hassaniya Sabah called Marco Polo to kind of show off and meet a diplomat essentially i think that's 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 the best way to describe it whilst um in the castle um hassan yasawa wanted to demonstrate his commitment committed fadaeens his committed assassins his committed fadaeens and he he looked at two of men who were dressed in white robes that was the traditional clothes of the fadaeens that was their uh, uniform almost they had a red tunic um and he indicated with the thing his fingers just a forward, just forward. He just pushed his fingers forward and both Fedain jumped from the castle 600 feet in the air and plummeted to their death, showing Marco Polo just how committed his um, Fedain were. And he said, is there any Christian leader with a more committed, um, with a more committed uh, soldier or more committed following? And Marco Polo and also the um, the Crusaders would also answer the same question because he was asked. They were asked. They say no. There is no uh, committed soldier, uh, Christian leader with this level of committed soldiers. So, some call them the Hashashin because they would say they were drugged up with hash. We hash is obviously a drug, um, but actually, let's look into this a little bit more. If you're going to be sending out a uh, highly skilled killer on a very specific kill. It's not like a, a rampant attack in a battlefield. This is, you're going out, you're gonna have to be climbing walls, scaling buildings, jumping through windows, you know, very targeted kill. You're not gonna trust that person if they're gonna be drugged up on hash. So the hashashin being smokers of hash is probably a not a true, it's more of a slur against them. Um, but hash, drugs were uh, involved in the um, in the uh, in the Hassan Yasawa's world, and I'll explain that to you because we're going to have to talk about his Garden of Delights. But let's just get to the point that the Hassanians are not druggies. I don't think they are. Let's let's come on. Let's look at it. They killed Aftal. He was the army general or the commander of the Fatimid Empire's army. You're not going to send in a drugged up, <laughs> you know, assassin to do that. That's going to be somebody just like, or, or kind of uh, collect, is it able to bring all of their intellect together to be able to commit this, um, you know, act. They killed the Abbasid Caliph, uh, Mustashahid, Mustashahid, Mustashahid Billah, 
again, you know, very high profile. He's not going to be available on the street. This person's going to be covered by arm, uh, armed soldiers, his personal bodyguard. So you're not going to send in somebody who's drugged up with hash. This is definitely a slur to the um, the Fedeins. So that brings us to the end of our episode number one entitled Mountain, Man, Old Man of the Mountain and the Deviant Sect. We're going to pick up uh, the next uh, episode where we're going to talk a little bit about the Garden of Delight. And we just kind of briefly touched on that. We're going to talk about another siege that was held um, for Castle Alamut. And we're going to talk about um, how Hassan Yassaba died and who he handed over the um, the the state to. I'm going to talk about Hassan II, who I inadvertently at the beginning of this podcast called him the great-grandchild of Hassan Yassaba. He's not. He was um, the leader of the Has- uh, Ismailis, Nizari Ismailis. So just to cover off uh, what we've covered off so far in uh, this section, we've talked about the impenetrable um, castle, which was Alamut, and how without any bloodshed, Hassan Yassaba was able to capture through essentially squatting. We talked a little bit about um, the, the reason why they were hated so much by the Seljuk leaders and why the Sunni Muslims didn't trust them and why the Seljuk leaders put a siege to Castle Alamut and wanted them out of the castle. In order to understand that, we need to understand the belief system of the Nizari Muslims. And I recited to you the chapter number one of the Quran from the Sunni Muslims and explained that is the essential belief of um, the understanding of what it means. And then I will translated um, the inner meaning for you for what the Ismaili Elis believed and you could see there was a complete difference in what they thought and I explained to you about their seven uh, concept and how the seven imams and seven inner silent imams taught the inner teachings of the Quran and the religion to the enlightened I told you they believed in resurrection which is uh, not resurrection um reincarnation and we talked about how that would butt up against the mainstream muslims we've talked a little bit about how nizam al-mulk laid siege to the castle because they were fed up of the work that they were doing and the propagation of the religion which was in in direct um, contradiction to sunni islam and we talked about how they were almost um, you know captured until they did a night siege and that night siege sorry the night attack kind of uh, scattered the seljuk army and as a result the siege came to an end We've talked about the socio setup of the uh, Ismailis in that they have the Da'is, they have the Rafiks and they have the Fada'ins. The Fada'ins are committed loyal soldiers who essentially became the assassins of the Nizari Ismaili sect. So the next session we are going to talk about um other the remainder of the story if you're on spotify please go on to the search type in islamic history 2020 or my name mohammed alamgia uh, find the podcast like the podcast share the podcast with your friends and family if you're on any other podcast listening service search islamic history 2020 search my name uh, find the podcast and again listen like and let's get the uh, messages out to the wider uh, audience as uh, much as we can 
So tune in for the next episode, which will no doubt uh, take you through the remainder of the story. For now, I'm going to leave you to it. Assalamu alaikum. Goodbye.